Acts chapter 8. As we work through the book of Acts, God is revealing himself. And he's revealed himself to a number of people already. Think of just the thousands of people in the first seven chapters who we've read about coming to the knowledge of Christ. Thousands. Over a relatively short period of time, God is revealing himself. God wants to be known. But God does not simply want to be known by people who live in Israel. God has a desire to be known among the nations. God wants all people to hear about him and to have the opportunity to either receive Christ and receive his gifts of his life on the cross or to reject him. And so it's not shocking that the message of Acts shows this message advancing past the borders of Israel. God's grace is available to all people. But the conditions by which one receives the grace of God have not changed. God is welcoming people to him, but the conditions do not change. And so we must have a proper understanding of God's grace. How does one receive God's grace today? God loves humanity, and he knew that they would sin. And he knew that they could not pay for their sin, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And Jesus came and he lived among people, and he saw the heartache, the pain, and sin bring into the world. He saw the bitterness that rises up in us when, when wrong is committed and we choose to not forgive it. He saw the consequences through death and disease and illness. And he knew that none of these things could be overcome through any effort of humanity alone. And so Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross. And he died on that cross some 2,000 years ago, paying the penalty for your sin and for my sin, so that through faith in his finished work, I can receive forgiveness of sins. I can be declared but this message is not simply for me. It is for all people. And so the question of how Simon responds to the message of Jesus in this text is left somewhat not fully fleshed out. And I think the reason is you and I are supposed to put ourselves into the text and say, how have I responded to the grace of God? Is there some sort of misconception in my understanding of who God is how he's demonstrated his grace and how he gives his grace that I need to correct so that God's grace reaches me. If you want to take your copy of God's word and let's read. We're going to start in verse 5 and we'll read through verse 25. Romans chapter 8, or sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 5 through 25. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things which spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. 
But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed at seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, <coughs> who, when they had come, down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on the, hand, the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perished with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God that perhaps that through that the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is true and that it accurately and faithfully tells us who you are. It tells us how you want us to be in a relationship with you. We pray that as we meditate upon this passage of scripture, that you would use it in our lives to help us to better see you, better know you, and have a greater love for you. That we would respond not just in knowing more about you, but that we would respond in genuine faith that is willing to set aside all else in our pursuit of and our desire to know to make you known. We praise you and thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives and what you will do in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. How will you respond? I believe that the theme of the text is this. God's abounding grace is for all who humble themselves in genuine faith. God's abounding grace is for all who will humble themselves in genuine faith. The text begins, and as it begins, the idea, I believe, is this. God's grace is available to all. If you look back at verse 4, what's happened? The, the apostles have just come under persecution. As the persecution starts, they scatter. And as they scatter, what happens? They preach the word of God. You might say, but that's great. But does the word of God have impact as they go? Yes, it absolutely does. How do we know that? Because the very next story shows the word of God being spoken outside of the nation of Israel. And what's happening? People are flocking to this message. People are embracing this message. People are receiving this message. This is something that is becoming their message. It's becoming their truth. They've embraced this message. 
And so the message of God's grace through Jesus Christ continues to spread. In verse 5, we see Philip leaving the city of Jerusalem, and he goes to a city in Samaria, and he preaches Christ to them. As he preaches Christ to them, people come to Christ. We see this because God reveals himself marvelously to the needy Samaritans. And the multitude with one accord, the idea is that there's unanimity. There's a lot of them. A great portion of the city hears the message and they embrace the truth. That's the idea of one accord. There's unity in this decision. This isn't simply that, you know, they come into the Samaritan city and they preach the gospel to them. And, you know, the front two rows on the left-hand side receive the message. The idea is that the city as a whole hears the message and they're like, this is a convincing message. This is truth. This is truth that we need to get behind. And so they, they embrace the truth. They follow the truth. And how do we know that they are needy? Look at the problems that they have. They come to him, and they have unclean spirits. The idea isn't simply that they have bad things happening to them, but the fact that they are unclean spirits implies that there is demonic activity in their midst. So there's demonic activity. And those demons came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. These people are needy. They're not only needy physically, but they're needy spiritually. The Samaritans for a long time have been people who have been blinded by the truth. The Jews ostracized them, but they also were ostracized for most of the Gentiles as well. Why? Because of their religious beliefs. The, the Samaritans were kind of a half-Jew, half-Gentile people group. They're the people who, when God took people out of the land of Israel, they stayed there, and instead of remaining faithful to God's commands about marrying people who were from their groups, they chose to go and marry people who were from the surrounding area. And as a result, they are corrupted. But their beliefs about who God is is also corrupted, and so they believe different things. If you remember the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, and she says, you guys teach to worship in Jerusalem, but we teach to worship here instead. And they have so many other misconceptions and misunderstandings about who God is. They are needy spiritually, but they're needy physically. And God's truth comes, he reveals himself to them, they believe it, and God's truth advances. God's grace is available to all people. But not only that, you see that the, the response ultimately leads to them rejoicing. There is joy in the community, and there was great joy in that city. Why? Not because the physical problems were simply solved, but because the physical and the spiritual problems are solved. There is light now in the God has revealed himself to these people. And they rejoice in this. Because God is working. God's showing himself to be a God who is not only the God of the Jews, but also the Samaritans. And if God is the God of the Jews and the Samaritans, then God is the God of all people. God has a desire to demonstrate his grace to all people. Why? Because God's grace 
is for those who are lost but hurting. People who are not hurting and who are not lost do not need God's grace. And God's grace comes to those who are lost and hurting God's grace is available. God wants to see people come to himself. He wants them to see their sin, to see that their sin separates them from himself, and to realize that the only hope that they would ever have in their lives of having a relationship with him is through his son, whom he sent to the world to be sacrificed for their sin. As a result, God's grace is available. And it cares for these people who are ostracized, who are hated by the Samaritans, so much, or by the Israelites, so much so that the Israelites typically wouldn't even travel through that land. They would inconvenience themselves by going around Samaria to get to a destination on the other side of Israel. But God's grace comes and it opens their eyes, opens blind eyes, and shows them the truth and reveals God's beauty. God's grace is available. Unfortunately, though, just because God's grace is available doesn't mean that everybody receives it and that everybody understands it right away. And this is immediately made apparent because here comes Simon the sorcerer. And in God's grace is misunderstood by the Samaritans. God's grace advances, but others are still at work. And the primary one who is still at work is not even Simon. Primary one who is at work while God's grace and truth advances is the devil. And he's seeking to deceive and to draw people and to keep people away from the Lord. From knowing about God's grace, that it is rich and free and unmeasured and available. And Simon is simply the tool that's being used in this context to draw people and to keep people from coming to Christ. The text introduces it by saying, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city. Practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. And the idea is that there's a spiritual void in Samaria, and it's been filled by Simon. If you remember, there's already a spiritual void because these people are Samaritans. Their understanding of who God is and how God wants them to relate to himself is already messed up. But then comes here Simon, and he steps into the situation. And he's astonishing the people by doing what? By working miracles, by doing magic. And he's drawing people away from the truth, and he's convincing them that he is someone great. The idea probably is at least that he has them convinced that I am drawing upon some divine power which is enabling me to do these marvelous acts in your midst. And if it's not that, it goes even further. That in some way, Simon has done such great magic, powerful acts in their midst that these people are actually convinced that Simon himself is somehow divine. These people are deceived. See how deep they think some human being is miraculously displaying the power of God or possibly even is divine himself. 
And this misconception seems to have drastically affected Simon. Maybe he doesn't actually believe what he's taught the people, but he does seem to have a desire to maintain this power and control over them. And this becomes even more clear as the text continues to unfold. And you see Simon's response to the great power that he sees the apostles possessing. And so the spiritual void is, is there. And as the spiritual void is there, it's been filled by Simon. He's lived among the people. He's made self-aggrandizing claims about who he is and about how he can influence and help them. So much so that they all gave heed to him, verse 10 says, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. You see how much they trust this guy? Their spiritual void has been filled by this man. His claim had put him in a position of great power and influence. It seems very likely that at least he's claiming divine power and and very likely or possibly claiming that he is somehow deity himself. And the people seem to have embraced this philosophy because the text tells us two times that they see this man as a great power of God and they heed him, and they've done so for a long time. But what happens in the midst of such a broken and hard place of misunderstanding? God's grace marvelously enters into this place and penetrates the hearts of sinners. Verse 9, 10, and 11 describes the condition of the people spiritually, but it just described in verses 5 through 8. Those people who come to Christ and receive Christ so, so thankfully, so gratefully, in verses 5 through 8, are the same people who are described in verses 9, 10, and 11. They're so drastically blinded by truth because of Simon. And, and so what have they learned? They've learned something about who Jesus is. Look at with me at verse 12. What, what is the truth that penetrates their hearts? What is the truth that they believe? that you and I must understand and believe to have the blindness taken from our eyes. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, Christ, both men and women were baptized. What do they believe? They believe what the scripture says about who Jesus is. They believe that there's a coming kingdom. That there is a time that is coming wherein God will punish sinners. Wherein God will reward those who are righteous, who are followers of him, who are obedient to his truth. They believe that. But they also believe that Jesus Christ was the one who is a prophet like Moses, who would come and would show himself to the people and would lead them in and he would provide a way that was better than the way that Moses provided for the people. They realized that they were sinners, that their sins separated them from God, that it alienated them from God, that they had no hope apart from Christ. And so they believed in the truth, 
as they believed in that truth, that Jesus is the way to receive forgiveness of sins through faith in him. All of a sudden, their eyes are no longer blinded. They receive the truth, and God's grace and mercy rushes into their life and transforms them. And they love him so much that they have a desire to publicly portray their new belief by following the way and acting like it. Proclaiming to their neighbors, to their friends, this Samaritan teachings and truth that we have followed for our lives are not the truth. We are going to follow Jesus Christ, him, crucified, buried, risen, and reigning now in heaven, and we'll come once again and reign here on earth. And that's all we're about now. And so they make this public testimony. And Simon sees this. Remember Simon's position in this town. Simon's like, not really the mayor, but like he has a position of power that would be like probably superior to a mayor of a small town in, in Iowa, right? Like this guy is a big thing. He's the one that he's like, he's got the great power of the divide, and everybody heeds him. Like he says, do this, and we're like, how low should we go when we bow? Like this guy is in a position of power. He sees the response of the people. What does he do? Simon himself then makes a profession of faith. He makes a profession of faith. Look at me at verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs that were done. It's interesting that as it says that he believed, what does he believe? It's interesting that he doesn't specifically state what he believes. He just says he believes. And so he makes this profession of faith, and then he continues to follow Philip. And in our translation, some of the um, the fun imagery is a little bit lost because some of your translations will say, "Seeing the great signs and miracles, or the great the miracles and the great signs that were done, he was amazed." And it really portrays with what's happened in the community. The people saw the great signs that he performed, and they said. This is amazing. And now something comes into his world and it just rocks his boat, right? The guy that's been wowing the whole community. So much so that they're like, at least this guy has divine power on his side, if he's not deity himself. This guy now sees something happen that he's like, whoa, that is unique. That is something that I've not seen before. The idea is like, he's really wowed by this. Like, this is truly unique. This is surprising. I did not expect this. I've seen myself do multiple magic miracle things. And I've amazed people for years. So much so that this whole community listens to me and follows me. And then this new guy walks into town. And I'm now wowing him. You see the drastic, like, worldview wreckage that has happened to Simon's world? But does he submit himself to that truth? Does he submit himself to the God of that truth? Or is he simply wowed by the truth? I believe he's just wowed by the truth. He sees the truth. He realizes it is truth. He knows it mentally. 
heart is not transformed by the truth. How do we know that? Because how does he respond to the truth going forward? And as Simon, or as Peter is going to address Simon and talk to him about it, he's going to actually talk to him about his heart. Right? So the apostles hear about what's happened, and as they hear about what's happened in the community in Samaria, they're like, hey, come see what's happened, pray for these people, and encourage these people in their newfound faith. And so now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard what had happened at Samaria and received the word, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And so they come to pray for the new believers so that they'll receive the Holy Spirit and so that it'll be evident to everybody that it's not simply something that's just physical. There is a spiritual sign in the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's not like it is today. Okay? You have to remember that Acts is a book of transition. And so people still speak in tongues at that time. And there are physical, physical visual demonstrations of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so when they come and they pray for these people, it becomes very obvious in verse 16. For as yet, the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so something visible happens. Something physical is there that is happening, that is present. And Simon sees the working of God in a newer way. He's already seen the things that Philip is doing. And he's like, wow, that's cool, I can't do that. And then the apostles come and they do something that Philip himself can't do. And it's like a double one, right? Like, oh man, there, there's, there's me with the divine power of God. And then there's Philip who's on a different plane. And then there's the apostles who are on a whole other plane of like ability to do crazy things that I can't do. And so when Simon saw it, verse 18 says, that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered the money saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so Simon's displaying that he has this misconception of God's grace. And this idea continues to develop. We've seen hints at it, but it becomes really apparent right here. His understanding of grace as something that's free, as something that's unmeasured, and given by God's choice to whom he wills, is completely missing in Simon's understanding of who God is and how he wants to relate to God. He thinks that he can come to God and work with God on his own terms. And it's wrong. And it demonstrates that he's never been transformed by the power of the gospel in his own life. And it's a dangerous place for you and I to be. Because you and I can know the truth just like he did. He knew that something was happening here that he could not do. He knew that something was unique about this message of Jesus Christ. And yet even though he knew it, because he knew that it was far superior to what he was actually doing, I believe that Simon was actually performing miracles. Demonic miracles, but miracles. But he saw something that was superior to what he could do. He knew it was something real. And yet he continued by rejecting that truth. 
you and I can hear the truth, we can know the truth, we can be exposed to the truth time and time again. Now we can even make verbal professions that we believe that truth, but have it never penetrate our hearts. Have it never impact what we actually believe about who God is and how we relate to his truth, how we relate to him as a person. It's a very, very sobering, scary we can know who God is and yet never trust him for our forgiveness of sins. And so Simon's misconception is, is a warning to you and I that we examine our own hearts. And that's what Peter calls upon Simon to do. God's grace is so easily disfigured by our, our own We reject God's grace and salvation. We reject God's grace in our service. That's what Simon does. He rejects God's grace and salvation, and he rejects the idea that God can demonstrate his grace in different ways and how he has different people serve. And so he sees something, and he wants it, and he's insistent that he has to have it because he refuses to allow God's grace to work as God's grace does. And so Simon is now taught a new lesson. God's grace demands repentance. Despite Simon's great offense, God's mercy and grace run yet deeper. It'd be easy for you or I if we encountered somebody who was as rebellious to truth as Simon to be just like, Forget it. You go do you. I'm going to keep doing me. And, you know, you go your way. See if you can get the people back. But I don't think you can because they've actually believed the truth. But that's not what happens. Peter sees the hopeless state of this lost man. And how does he respond to it? He responds by saying, God's grace is available. Reach out to seek after God's grace. Look with me at verses 20 and following. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. He's stern, but it's loving. Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. See, he addresses his heart. Tells him his heart is wrong in this whole matter. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your hearts may be forgiven you. Notice he references the, the idea of his heart being wrong two different times, and he tells him, you need to address the heart problem. You have a misconception about who God is, and you need to get that right with God. And so he rebukes his faulty view of God's gift. And then Simon is somehow under this mistaken notion that God's gift could be earned through a financial transaction. He has no part in the ministry of God because his heart is self-seeking. He is not seeking the advancement of Christ crucified, buried, and risen again. Rather, he's seeking what? I think he's seeking the same thing that he's always sought with his life. That the community with which he lives in will look at him as a person of great power of the divine. That they would do what? That they would heed him. They would listen to him. He wants to be respected in the community. 
That's his heart's ambition. That's his heart's desire. That's what he wants with his whole being. And he sees that he's not getting that under this current new system where Jesus Christ is Lord and he reigns over all areas and he's the one who receives the honor and the glory and the majesty. Simon's like, give me that ability to put my hands on people and they get the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in these weird tongues. I want to have a prominent position like that. A place of power. And Peter rebukes him and says, no, that's not how it works. Go to God and confess your sins. Seek his forgiveness. And perhaps you can be forgiven. Peter explains his sin and calls upon him to repent and forsake his error. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, are there areas in my life where I have misconceptions and misunderstandings about my faith? Perhaps in the area of salvation. Perhaps it's in the area of service. Perhaps it's both. What are you and I relying upon to have salvation? Is it because we attend a church service? Or is it because God's grace through Jesus Christ is sufficient through him I receive forgiveness of sins? Is it because we give money to the church? Or is it because I place my faith in Jesus' unfinished death, burial, and resurrection? That's the question. Why do you serve in the area in which you serve as you serve at church? Is it because of the prominence that the position gives you? Or is it because you're seeking to advance the cause of Christ? Are you jealous of somebody else's position of service and the way that God's grace has worked in their life and put them in a certain ministry that you have a desire to serve in? God's grace works differently in each person's life, and we need to be willing to receive that and accept that. Repentance will be accompanied by God's forgiveness. He tells them, if you go and you repent and pray, God, and perhaps the thought of your hearts may be forgiven you. I think the idea is that if you do go and you do confess, you will be forgiven. This is the idea that's taught in other scriptures. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I know that that's written to believers, but there are passages of Scripture that tell us that sinners are welcome. Right? Jesus is available to who? All people. He is gentle and lowly to the heavy and to the laboring. Jesus is available. And so he tells them, go to Christ. Approach Christ. Ask him for forgiveness. It's, it's rather remarkable what Simon does next. Because I believe he rejects God's mercy and grace. He's given a very specific instruction. If you're remorseful and repentant for your behavior, go to God and ask him for forgiveness. And Simon says, I'll ask you for forgiveness. What? What? That's not what you were told to do. Right? He's told, pray God, if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you. Then Simon answered and said, 
Pray to the Lord for me. No. This isn't something that somebody has to do for you. This is something that you do yourself. Your family doesn't get to make the decision for your salvation. You choose, as an individual, whether or not you will receive Christ this day. It's not about Simon Peter praying for Simon. It's about Peter or Simon realizing his own serious offense against the holy God and realizing that that offense needs to be pardoned for. And the only way he can receive that pardon is by admitting his guilt before a holy, just God and asking a holy and just God to forgive him by looking instead at the death of Jesus Christ for his sins. And Simon misses it completely. He says, you go. Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things that you have spoken may come upon me. These sound really bad. Why don't you go do it for me? Over his head, right? Doesn't get it. Simon rejects God's mercy. It's a really sobering thought, sobering truth. It can be so close to truth that God's grace can be demonstrated in so many different ways. That the truth of God's word can be so powerfully demonstrated in his life. As somebody who has used demonic power for his whole life, performed miracles in a community, that he has such great power, he sees that there's something far greater than his power, and somebody tells you, this is God at work, and you say, well, I think I'll do it my way. God's grace is available. But God's grace requires that we approach him with a desire to receive forgiveness for our sins. We are truly repentant of our sins. So we realize that our sin is not against primarily each other, but against the holy God. And when we realize that and we come before the Lord in true repentance and faith, God is willing to open his arms towards us and embrace us and welcome us why? Because he's gentle and lowly. He's open, he's compassionate, he's merciful towards those who realize their need of him. That's who our God is. And that's how his grace works. It's available. But it's not just available because it's available. It's available because you realize your need as an individual and you're willing to come and receive it as your gift. You're willing to treasure it and live as if your life has been ultimately, completely transformed by these truths. God's grace, though, flows beyond that. And we see this in verse 25. After such a negative experience in verse 24, where you tell somebody, go to God, he's merciful, he's, he's gracious, he's forgiving, he'll forgive you your sin if you will, ask him, Simon. And he tells you, eh, you go, pray. I don't know, I'm, you know, like, I might just want to go home and be like, I'll deal with this on Tuesday, right? I typically take Mondays off because Mondays I'm really not worth much, right? I'll deal with this on Tuesday. But how do they respond? They respond by living through the power of God's grace, and they continue to minister to people who need the message. And they go and they preach, and the idea is what? 
as they're scattering, the word of God is advancing and people are getting saved. Verse 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And I believe that the response in many of those villages was very similar to the one that Philip received. God's grace flows from those who are willing to realize that they are sinners, that their sin separates them from God, and that they need God's grace, that they need God's the only way to receive God's grace and forgiveness is by coming to him in repentance, realizing that he is the Lord. And so God's grace flows to the humble. While some reject the grace of God, still others embrace it, finding hope and peace with God. Realizing God is working in the Samaritan community, Peter and John return, uh, sorry, return to Jerusalem, proclaiming the grace of Jesus. Many of these communities respond in God, respond to God's grace. And then a final question, how have you responded to God's grace? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand who Jesus is for you? Do you realize that your sin, whether great or small, that one sin is enough to permanently separate you from the Holy God? And yet God did not want you to be permanently separated from him. So he sent his son Jesus into the world to come and he lived among sinful people. He experienced the pain and the heartache that you and I experienced. And then he went and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. So that if you are willing to trust in his finished work, believing that through him alone you can be a treasure house, you may receive grace of God. God's grace is available for all people. But it requires that we approach him with humility receiving his free gift. And so as we think about our application, you and I need to rejoice in and learn about God's full and unmeasured grace. God's grace is enough to forgive you if you sin one time and God's grace is enough to forgive you if you sinned in one single way a million times. God's grace, God's forgiveness is free and it's unmeasured. Not only that, God's grace knew the many ways in which you would sin before God ever had Christ go to the cross. He knew all the ways that you'll sin from today until the day of your death. And he says, I'm willing to have my son pay the penalty for those sins. And to the extent that we understand these truths and rejoice in and live in these truths, you and I will see ourselves growing in and loving Christ and serving him with faithfulness. So this isn't simply a text to, for unbelievers. This is a text to teach us as believers the enormous magnitude of our God's grace and his desire to see people come to himself. It should motivate you and I as we learn about and experience the grace of God to see God's grace be offered to those who don't know it yet. But we also need to be on guard against false, faulty responses to the grace of God. Just as Simon here sees that there is something true here and rejects it, the same thing can happen during the Internet. 
People can experience the truth. They can see the truth. They can know the truth. They say effectively the same thing Simon does. You go pray for him. But me, I'm not going to go pray. We must be on guard for faulty responses. We rejoice that God has given his son for our sins. Because if it was not for the gift of Christ, you and I would have no hope. We can rejoice in God's grace only because of the Son's gift to himself. And so today, as we gather, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus died for us. We rejoice in the fact that he was buried for us. We further rejoice in the fact that he's been raised for us. And so now we can have new life, not through our own efforts, but through the Son who we now live. We are now in Christ. And then finally, we rejoice that God is making himself known to all who will receive his gift. God's work is not done. There are still people that God has a desire to see come to know him, to understand more fully the great, unmeasured, full, free, boundless grace of God. You and I have opportunities this coming week to make his grace known. You and I need to purpose that as we have those opportunities this coming week, that we will boldly proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you that you have sent your son into the world. That your son has paid the penalty for our sins. The grace is available through Jesus Christ, and it's available for all people. And that you want us to humble ourselves, admit that we have sinned against you, believe that your Son has paid the penalty for our sins, and that your Son can make us righteous. We pray that we would confess these truths, and that we would receive your grace. We pray that we would find ways to proclaim and make known the great grace of our Savior. Thank you.